This morning, I'd like to introduce you to someone. His name is Kumar. He lives in India. When Kumar was only five years old, he suffered a great loss. His father died suddenly, and his mother abandoned him after the death. So orphaned and alone, Kumar went to live with his uncle, who did his best to provide him with some stability and security. But two years after his father's death, Kumar's tragedies were compounded when a corrupt brick kiln owner used a small debt incurred by a relative to illegally conscript seven-year-old Kumar into slavery at his kiln. The brick kiln was a massive operation that churned out hundreds of hard clay bricks every day. Slaves, children, women, and men gathered water, sifted sand, molded bricks, and hauled them in and out of the sun for the owner's profit. As other children his age were just beginning school, Kumar was initiated to a life of slavery. Kumar struggled alongside adults at the kin, bewildered and scared by what he saw. All day, seven days a week, he carried heavy clay bricks back and forth in the kiln as they dried. Every moment was occupied. He woke early each morning to begin laboring at 6.30 a.m. and continued until the evening hours. His hands were raw and his body exhausted from the strain of the brickwork. Held as a slave, Kumar was forced to make bricks every day for the profit of his owner. His owner hurled abusive threats at him and the other laborers when, when he felt they were not working hard enough. He said, they tortured me so much, Kumar remembers. We worked hard and suffered terribly. Even when he was sick, his owner beat him and dragged him to the kiln. Though he was only a child, Kumar knew that his situation was wrong. I wanted to study. I wanted my parents. I wanted to play. At times, I would think of all these things, he remembers. Kumar was trapped. When another slave at the kiln had attempted to flee, the owner tracked him down and brought him back to the facility, publicly beating him as a warning to the others. There was no escape for Kumar. What do you think about that? How do you feel about that? How do you think God feels about that? In Deuteronomy 24, it says, God speaks through Moses, says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. Whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Proverbs echoes the same theme. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. The Lord saw what happened to Kumar, and he detested it. It was an abomination to him that there was no justice for Kumar. 
And as a result, God will judge the sin. Now, of course, that's India. We don't live in India. Thank God we don't live in India. But if you ate chicken this week, which probably most of us did, you need to know that working in a chicken factory in the United States is one of the most dangerous jobs we have here. Um, in the decade leading up to 2008, 100 poultry, poultry workers died in that industry. 300,000 were injured, many, many suffering the loss of a limb and debilitating repetitive motion injuries. The U.S. Department of Labor surveyed 51 poultry, poultry processing plants in the U.S. and found 100% had violated labor laws by not paying employees for all the hours they worked. And one-third took impermissible deductions from their workers' pay. If we look to our vegetable fields, a recent study of women of Mexican descent working in the fields of California Central Valley, 80% said they had been sexually harassed. While investigating the sexual harassment of California farm worker women in the mid-1990s, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission found that hundreds, if not thousands of women had to have sex with supervisors to get or keep jobs. This is in California. Some of these workers are in North Carolina. Did you know that in the United States, when African Americans go to the hospital and they have the same health benefits as do whites, they are discharged quicker and sicker, often receiving inferior care when they have the exact same medical benefits. See, injustice is all around us. And God detests it. It grieves him deeply. And he wants his people to grieve as well. Our passage today as we walk through the book of Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy 19, and it is a portrait of God's concern for justice. If you'll open your Bibles there, I'd like to pray for us, and we'll look at, at God's heart for justice from the laws that are contained in Deuteronomy 19. Let's pray. God, show us who you are and who you long for us to be. Give us ears to hear and faith to obey you today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In Deuteronomy 19, there are three sets of laws. Their intention is to protect justice in the promised land when God's people enter it. They're just about to enter the promised land. Moses is giving them the laws that are to govern them in the land. Here's the first set in the first few verses. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, 
and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. So they're about to enter the land, right? And make sure you notice, it's a done deal in Moses. It's absolutely certain. God is going to keep his promise to his people. Okay? It's not if you enter the land and dispossess the peoples. It's when you do it. Right? It's a sure thing. It says, when you do that, when that happens, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. So they are about to enter the land. When that happens, they are to set up three cities that are to be cities of refuge for a manslayer. That is, someone who has killed someone. Continue in verse 4. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he's sworn to your fathers, gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all his commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So the manslayer, the way it's rendered in this translation, is someone who has accidentally killed someone. And they give you an example, uh, a woodcutting accident where his neighbor is actually killed by an accident that happens at his hand. The cities are to protect him from someone called the Avenger of Blood. Now, at this point, I told Daniel Creswell, it sounds like a video game. The Avenger of Blood is after the manslayer. Will he make it to the city of refuge? Um, uh, um, but the, the Avenger of Blood is not some uh, video character. It's, it's typically um, the nearest of kin or a near kin to the one whose life was taken. And uh, they are seeking to avenge his life. Um, now, in these three cities that are to be enlarged for six cities as their land increases... The purpose is to protect the innocents from hateful, anger-driven vengeance. Okay. Not from justice, but from hateful, anger-driven vengeance. It's a, it protects justice in the land. That's what these cities are for. Now, it continues on. It says, if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him 
and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies. Very different scenario, right? And he flees into one of these cities. Then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you, so that God will bless them. So the concern shifts from someone who accidentally takes a life to someone who intentionally murders someone out of hatred. That's his motive. And the elders, together with this avenger of blood, exercise capital punishment upon the murderer. There is no refuge for him in these cities. Justice requires his life. And so this is the first set of laws in Deuteronomy 19. Protecting the innocent, protecting justice in the case of what we would call manslaughter and murder. So that justice is exercised rightly and protected in both of those cases. The innocent are not condemned and the guilty are not set free. Second set of laws in Deuteronomy 19 is really just one law, just one verse. The next verse. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, the, the property marker, okay, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So now the emphasis shifts to another focus of justice. Justice in real estate transactions, okay, business deals, basically. Against stealing your neighbor's property by moving their boundary marker. God's concern for his justice now, his care for his people, extends to business deals and property rights, we see. There's a third set of laws that pick up in verse 14, or 15, rather. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So... We saw this back in chapter 17. Um, God is implementing a protection of justice by requiring more than one witness. Moses now continues with this concern about witnesses and he addresses false witnesses. He says, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot Four foot. So, here we have a protection of justice against what we might call perjury, against false witnesses. And the way that that happens is the, the false witness is subjected to the very punishment of the person that he falsely accused. So, if the false accusation was that there was imprisonment, that's what or the, the penalty was to be imprisonment, that's what the perjurer would suffer. And the justice is set up that way. It's to be carried out 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So we look at these three sets of laws. We come away with a clear sense that when God's people enter the land and they set up this idyllic society that's to represent God to the nations, they're to be a just people because God is a just God. The entire chapter is put in place to protect justice in the land. And justice matters to God because it is his character to be just. God is just. Later in Deuteronomy, we're going to see, uh, Moses is going to describe God. He's going to say the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Justice matters to God because of who God is. He's a just God, and he wants us to reflect that to the people, to the nations. But justice matters to God, I think, also because it protects the innocent. And you, you pick up on that in the way these laws work. Um, it's the purpose of those cities of refuge, right? Back in verse 10 in our passage, they have those cities of refuge. Lest innocent blood be shed in your land. That's why the cities were established, to protect the innocent. And those who murdered those who were innocent, um, we find in verse 13, that's the purpose. They are not allowed in the city. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. Um, justice is about protecting the innocent, especially the life of the innocent. God is really concerned. This is throughout the Old Testament. He has a great concern for the life of the innocent. Um, this is why one of the reasons why abortion is such a tragedy of justice. It, it takes the life of the most innocent, the most defenseless, the most needy. The shedding of blood, shedding of innocent blood, especially if it's done for profit, is cursed by God. We'll, we'll see this later in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. I would not want to be an abortionist in light of this teaching. I mean, who are they but someone who profits from the taking of innocent life? And they will be cursed by God. But in the same thing, I would not want to be a Christ follower who is disengaged in this important issue of justice in our day. 30,000 abortions a year in North Carolina. 72 a day. 10,000 of those in Wake County. One of every five births in North Carolina is aborted. 
We partner with Pregnancy Support Services, now First Choice Pregnancy Solutions, to make a difference in this matter. To protect the most innocent and the most vulnerable. What will you do about this matter of justice? How will you reflect God's concern for justice for the most innocent? You know, how will you answer the question one day when your grandkids ask you, Grandpa, when the babies were being murdered, where were you? 30,000 in our state this year. I wonder if it'll be like the Germans who asked their grandparents now, when the Nazis were murdering innocent Jews, Grandpa, where were you? So what will you do? How will you reflect God's love for justice in this matter? Proverbs 6 says, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven, they're an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, and the third one, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates the shedding of innocent blood, and he expects the same of us. It's as though God takes his people, and he sits them on a lampstand for all the nations to see. And when, and when they look and see his people, they should see the character of God reflected in them, in their laws and in their character. The prophet Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice. To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. They should be able to know that our God is a just God because we as a people do justice. And justice, even in our passage, is not just about really big matters, life and death kind of matters. It's about Everyday matters. You know, in, that, in that 14th verse, it's about honesty and integrity in business dealings. That's, that's part of being just, doing justice. You know, it's interesting that um, there was a study in Uganda done, and they found that 30% of widows and orphans surveyed they had been victimized by property grabbing following the death of a parent or spouse. A third of all orphans and widows that they surveyed had had their property stolen, their boundary marker moved. See, justice is about integrity in our character in all of life, which according to King David, God loves. I know, my God, David says, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. God loves it when his people have integrity. And what Cardinal Newman said is wise. He says, integrity on one side of our character is no voucher for integrity on the other side. We must have integrity in all of life. We must be people who practice justice in all that we do. Doing justice means we don't practice injustice in our personal dealings. It's about keeping your word when you give it. 
It's about being a man or a woman of your word, about being reliable and trustworthy in all your personal dealings. You don't steal. You don't cheat. You don't go back on your word when it benefits you to do so. Psalm 15 warns us about not honoring our word when it comes to our advantage. It says, the man who swears to his own hurt and does not change, that's the man who is blessed by God. Doing justice means we don't practice injustice in our personal dealings. And we don't ignore injustice around us. When 14-year-old Mana in India ran away from her abusive home, she met a woman who offered her a job selling fabric. She accepted the position, and the woman provided her a place to sleep for the night. And when Mana awoke in the morning, the woman was gone, and Mana discovered she was in a brothel. 14 years old. For the next two years, she was held in the brothel and raped by customers for the profit of the brothel owners. Worldwide, there are nearly 2 million children in the commercial sex trade. So what do we do about that? What is God asking you to do about that? See, Deuteronomy 19 teaches us that God loves justice. And he expects his people to reflect that to the world. To do justice, we must safeguard justice. And there are several things in our text that, that we're cautioned against by the way these laws play out. Um, several things that undermine justice. And the first of those is vengeance and anger and hatred. They jeopardize justice. In verse 6, you know, the cities of refuge were to protect the manslayer from the avenger of blood who in hot anger would pursue him and overtake him and wrongfully take his life in vengeance. Down in verse 11, if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him, hatred brings about an act of injustice and an innocent neighbor is killed. You, you can't, you cannot do justice well when you are angry. If you're a parent, you know this. You don't do justice well when you're angry. When your child, child messes with something that is dear to you and you're just ticked off, the penalty is off with their heads. You know, this is a capital offense. You, you're grounded till the cows come home, Right? And the child says, we, we don't have cows. Exactly! <laughs> You're grounded forever! <laughs> I love the story that uh, John Ortberg tells. He says, um, some years ago, we traded in my old Volkswagen Super Beetle for our first piece of new furniture, a mauve sofa. It was roughly the shade of Pepto-Bismol, but because it represented us a substantial investment, we thought mauve sounded better. So the man at the furniture store warned us not to get it when we found out we had small children. You don't want a mauve sofa, he advised. Get something the color of dirt. <laughs> he said, but we had the naive optimism of young parenthood. We know how to handle our children, we said. Give us the mauve sofa. 
From that moment on, we all knew clearly the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on, breathe on, look at, or think about the mauve sofa. Remember the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? On every other chair in the house you may freely sit, but upon the sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. <laughs> he says, then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and ordered it, lined up our three children in front of it, Laura, age four, Mallory, age two and a half, and Johnny, six months. Do you see that, children, she asked. That's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store said it is not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mob sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and heart-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. <laughs> Laura passionately denied it. There was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. I knew the children wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. I knew they wouldn't, because they knew, if they knew that, <laughs> wait a second, because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. I knew they wouldn't, because I was the one who put the red jelly stain on the mob sofa. <laughs> And I knew I wasn't saying anything. I figured I would find a safe place to confess, such as in a book I was going to write, man. See, that's not justice. That's persecution. You can't exercise justice when you're angry. Anger inventions twist justice out of proportion. And that's the other thing that we must protect justice from, disproportionality. That's the emphasis of that verse. Almost everyone has heard it. Verse 21, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Chris Wright wisely says, contrary to the popular view, the law does not condone rampant physical vengeance, but is precisely the opposite intention. It is designed to ensure that penalties in law are strictly proportionate to offenses committed. It is very likely that the phraseology was standard and stereotypical, expressing the principle of proportionality, not necessarily intended to be followed literally in all cases. This law represents a legal development that was actually an improvement on an earlier practice of uncontrolled vengeance. Justice must be proportional. We would say the punishment must fit the crime. That's when it's just. If, if, if justice is disproportionate, then it's no longer justice. For instance, um, when Virginia's... Uh, Henrica County school system decided to get rid of a thousand laptop computers. They offered the four-year-old Apple uh, iBooks to the public for $50 each. Okay. 
People started lining up hours before the sale was to take place um, at the Richmond International Raceway. One woman was so desperate to hold her place in line that she wet herself rather than give it up. By the time that the gates opened at 7 a.m., desire had built to a fever pitch and a terrifying mob scene took place. Although most injuries were minor, a child's stroller was crushed and an elderly man was thrown to the ground. Jesse Sandler was one of the winners. He ended up with an iBook, but not without a fight. Sandler beat people with the folding chair he had brought along. This is what he says. I took my chair here, and I threw it over my shoulder, and I went, bam. The 20-year-old said this nonchalantly as I glued to the screen of his new iBook as he tapped away on the keyboard at a testing station. They were getting in front of me, and I was here a lot earlier than them, so I thought that it was just. I thought it was just that I should beat you with a chair because you cut in line in front of me. Okay? That's disproportionate justice. It's not justice. So to protect justice, it must be proportionate. The punishment has to fit the crime. In parenting and in our legal system. Another thing, interestingly enough, um, that Moses warns us that to protect justice, we must protect justice against is, um, is pity. He says it um, twice in the verse we just talked about. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Pity must not be allowed to miscarry justice, and it can. Uh, this happens, I see it happen all the time with parents. Um, Johnny, Johnny shoots his sister with his new airsoft gun. Okay? This is forbidden. You are not to shoot your sister with your new airsoft gun. Johnny shoots his sister. Parent takes the gun. Brand new gun. Johnny just got it yesterday for his birthday. Takes the gun, puts the gun away. You're not going to have that gun for a week because you shot your sister with your airsoft gun. Johnny is in despair. He's depressed, weeping. Lower lip is swelling profusely. Oh, he's, he's too miserable. We. Okay, Johnny, you can have the gun, but next time you're going to be grounded from your gun forever if you shoot your sister. That's, see, that's not justice. Justice has been compromised by pity and by a manipulative child okay, and a sucker of a parent, which we've all been or done at some point. Your eye shall not pity, Moses says. We must exercise justice proportionately and faithfully. There are other things um, that we can point out as well, but let's just say, without question, our God is just. And he wants his people to reflect that to a watching world. He supremely shows his justice at the cross. 
See, Paul tells us in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. His justice was satisfied on the cross when Jesus bore the penalty for our sins. That's how committed God was and is to justice. That it would cost Christ his life to preserve it. To exercise it on our behalf. See, the cross is the great display of justice and love. Cornel West said, justice is what love looks like in public. They are often together in the scriptures, and they are at the cross as well. God displays his justice at the cross, but he also displays it with lesser glory um, in his people. He desires to display it in his people, in us, in you and me. Erwin Lutzer in one of his books, tells a story of a Christian who lived in Hitler's Germany. And the man wrote, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks, we became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow, and we dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we could hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew that the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. And by the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, he says, and, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. God, forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. God has told you, O oh man. He has told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. See, to be a people who reflect God's justice. We cannot simply sing louder in the face of injustice. God is calling us to be a people who are just in our dealings and who stand against injustice. Let me finish by telling you the rest of Kumar's story. 
See, one day, everything changed for Kumar. The International Justice Mission, a Christian organization that specializes in justice matters. Their Bangalore office had discovered the slavery in the kiln and documented evidence of conditions there. Based on this evidence, they partnered with local government authorities and police to plan a raid of the facility to release the slaves. The team arrived early in the morning and entered the kiln. Each slave was asked to tell his or her story to a government official. Word of the intervention quickly spread throughout the area to other kiln owners, many of whom also relied on the stolen labor of slaves. And as a ripple of panic passed through the slave owners, a wave of hope came to Kumar and the other slaves. When I heard that somebody is going to release me from here, I felt very happy, he remembered. While the International Justice Mission provided support to the government officials documenting the crimes at the facility, owners of other kilns illegally using slave labor began to arrive on the scene, yelling threats against the workers who were testifying. But with boldness and courage, Kumar and the other slaves continued to speak the truth to the government official responsible for documenting the situation and certifying their status as emancipated slaves. They ensured that Kumar and others received official government documentation proving their status as former slaves and brought them to a safe location. After two years were stolen from his childhood, Kumar was finally free. And the next day, the workers begin to compile evidence to pursue the persecution of the slave owner, or prosecution of the slave owner, excuse me. The International Justice Mission aftercare staff brought Kumar back to his native village, and there Kumar began a new life. He enrolled in school, and he quickly began to make up for lost time, and after completing several grades and an accelerated pace in his school, specifically for former child laborers, he is now continuing his studies in a mainstream school. Kumar enjoys riding his bike, and tending to the goats he was able to purchase through the special financial assistance the Indian government pr provides emancipated slaves. Today, Kumar's life is one of hope. The International Justice Mission has brought freedom and long-term support to thousands of former slaves, but many more are waiting for release. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Let's pray. Father, I, I do not like stories like this. They, they penetrate into my comfortable subdivision and my, my wonderful home, and they disturb me precisely because I've been so comfortable while two million children are sold into the sex trade. And widows and orphans have their land stolen. Lord, I, I wonder if in this room there are some that you could call to lead our church. 
to reflect your justice, which is your love in public for people like Kumar, for migrant workers who suffer abuse in fields in our state and in our nation. So Lord, I pray right now that we would listen well to you. That there are some that you are prompting to become involved. For some, this might be a life's calling, a life's work. For some of us, we just need to repent of injustices that we have participated in or that we have ignored. So Lord, may your spirit have his way with us now. We pray this in Christ's name.